0: Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. We're so glad that you are here. If you're watching this online or on replay, we're glad you're tuning in as well. It is uh, Super Bowl Sunday, everybody. Hopefully you found a spot to be able to either host or uh, or go check out the game and, and watch and uh, see how badly the 49ers lose this game. It's going to be great. <clears throat> hey, welcome to uh, part two of our series called Per My Last Email. It's a series on grace. Uh, we kicked it off last week and we said that um, we've all been in that spot before where we uh, sent an email to somebody or maybe received an email from somebody and the opening line was per my last email, which was communicating you clearly didn't read it, you read it, you ignored it, you don't care. Um, something happened, something transpired and I have an opportunity to show some grace at the moment and uh, choose to overlook it or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pointing it out, but I could be more, um, more aggressive of it as well. And so we call this an opportunity for grace. And uh, you know, you go through life and have lots of different opportunities for grace. Perhaps this was a tough week for you. You had so many opportunities for grace. Uh, but but it, it, we're practicing that grace as much as we can. Uh, and we wanted to look at the idea of grace or the topic of grace from a you know, church standpoint, from a religious standpoint. Um, and we decided to kind of do it in this way. We defined grace as this, what I crave most when my guilt has been exposed... I want some sort of, uh, I'm so sorry, I I did it. There's no question about guilt or error or an infraction of some sort. But what I want from you is grace. I know I'm late on my payment. And I know you have very, 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 long lists of, you know, contractual language talking about what happens when I'm late with my payment. But I just need a little bit of grace here. Um, and it's the very thing that I'm hesitant to extend when I'm confronted with the guilt of other people. When I'm the one that's been robbed from, when I'm the one that has something, they're expecting grace from me as a result of something, then I'm like, I'm like it's so difficult for me to kind of ex- extend it, especially when their guilt has robbed me of something that I consider to be valuable. I'm so sorry that I hit your car. I, I just, I'm, I'm out of work right now. I'm in a tough spot. I'm like, oh, well, that's a tough, I, you want me to give you grace. And it's, so it's, again, it's refreshing when we're on the receiving end of it. It's disturbing uh, when we are the one to have to give it. Uh, and we said, when it comes to the, the, that is grace in general. When it comes to grace as it relates to, uh, you know, religiousness or, or or a sense of who God is and what he means to us. And then, then we said that God, oper- Jesus was known as someone who was, had a fullness of grace and truth that John, one of the apostles took to writing the book of John in his intro in chapter one and setting the stage for who Jesus was. He was a man of all the things that I knew about him. He had the ability to speak to the fullness of grace and truth over and over again, representations of him showing interactions with people, pointing them towards truth, like guiding them towards truth, letting them know that there was something that was wrong that they needed to adjust their behaviors, but also an immense amount of grace. And if you could somehow figure out the balance between those two things, that would be that would be the best. That would be what you should be as a church. That should be what you what you are as a parent, uh, as an employer, as, as a friend, as a husband, as a wife, as you go through relationships, managing, you know, speaking truth to truth and speaking and but doing it with grace, knowing that you have their backs in in all of that. And we said last week, we're not going to reach that all the time. Um, And I've chosen for myself to err on the side of grace as much as I can, uh, because I I think what's kind of critically important is that the church is most appealing when the message of grace is most apparent. Um, that I might not be able to to always nail it when it comes to speaking to fullness of, of truth, but I can try my hardest uh, to operate with a, a level of grace that's involved with this. And so if you've liked Eastlake for any length of time, that, that might be like one of the things that you would say. I've never been able to kind of put my thumb on it, but that's a little bit about what I feel. There's a little bit of, of grace involved in there. And, and I, I do feel convicted. I, there are some truth things to it, but I also like the freedom people to have that. So that's a critical thing. And we said, important uh, about this. Why is, why is grace so critically important? Because grace didn't begin with Jesus, as much as we like to oftentimes think so, that it's not a, it's not a, um, you know, in what we read about God is God was a God of law and rules in the Old Testament. And then like Jesus came on the scene and like he had a change of heart. He had a waking up, a new reality, an evolution of sorts or something. And now um, Jesus is a representation of grace. As much as we can get that from sort of reading it, it's not really doing us, uh, it's doing a disservice to who God truly is. Because I think what we've said is that grace has been a part of God's plan from the beginning. Even in the creation stories we said last week, like God, or grace began in a garden even the creation process of itself is grace. So we said, it's gonna be easy for us to find grace when it comes to the teachings of Jesus and, 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 and all of that. It's gonna be a little bit harder. We gonna to have to do a little bit more digging as we look early on or kind of put down some pre- preconceived perceptions about what we think about what the story means. And so we're gonna spend some time looking in the Old Testament, moving forward from left to right, uh, a little bit about what the grace of God looks like and how it manifests itself in God's interaction with humanity. Because I think God's been, Full of grace with humanity since the inception, since the beginning, uh, since origins uh, passed. So that's the story about where we're at. So we started last week with Genesis chapter basically one and two, a little bit of chapter three, um, and we're going to move forward to the end of uh, of Genesis today. But before we do, a little bit of a social experiment, a little bit of a game to kind of play uh, along, get you talking, get you moving a little bit, keep you awake. Uh, finish this phrase for me real quick. You reap what you. Yeah. See, you guys are smart. You guys, it is easy. What goes around, we're gonna come back to that a little bit. Actions have. Yeah, every parent like, yeah. Listen, if I, I have eighteen years to talk to you about this, your actions have consequences. Either you learn it from me, or you learn it from the law, or policeman, or whatever. So I let's learn it from me. And the winner of the Super Bowl today will be the. This is the right answer. Yeah, yeah. There we go. All right. <laughs> just, just clarifying, we call those things modern day proverbs, right? Quips. Uh, adages, phrases, things—things things to base your life around—that make life predictable. Like you're, you're trying to say, "Listen, kids, um, actions have consequences Goes around, you'd say, you know, karma language. You'd say, uh, "You do good things, good things happen to you." It's funny. You, you put in the work, and, and and work becomes easy. You know, you study for the test, and all of a sudden you're smart. Like there, it, it's, there's things that are that, that are that are uh, you, you pay it for. You do this. There's, there's causes and effects. This is how kind of basic cause and effect ratio or scenarios uh, in life. There's no guarantee, there's no guarantee, but in general, this makes life fairly predictable. Uh, I live under the impression that my carb intake has a cause and effect relationship with my belt loop and the certain hole that the belt loop goes into. If those things are not related, I would like to know sooner than later, you know what I mean? Because I'm living my life in a way that like is predictable cause and effect in this way. And the thing, the problem that we have with Proverbs occasionally is that there's always room, however small, for exceptions. And we try and tell our kids, yes, there are going to be exceptions to the rule, but don't base your life on them. You're going to college. Taylor Swift didn't go to college. Yes, but you are right? Because you're not as good at a guitar and not as good a singer, right? So that's how this stuff works. And perhaps the most valuable exception of all comes to us in the form of grace. And that's what I want to talk about. What aspect or what perspective of grace do I want to look at today? I want to look at the perspective of grace that says that sometimes we don't get what we deserve and sometimes we get exactly what we do not deserve. Or another way of saying it is this, that grace is the vehicle that God uses on occasion to ensure that we get precisely what we do not deserve. Um, and we see this in lesser forms. We see this in the unwritten uh, uh, parking ticket, right? Or the uh, unwritten speeding violation. Just a warning this time, sir, but please slow it down. Uh, A second chance at curfew expectations, a scratched late fee, the possibility of good things happening to undeserving people. And moved by love, I think God uses even the best of intentions or the bad intentions of cruel people to redeem them. That God is in the shaping world, in his grace, he can take even what we are trying to push off as bad intentions of cruel people, can work even those things for our good. That it's not just even like we tried hard and God came through for us, it's like even when, even when it goes backwards, that God's bigger than the situations. God's bigger than the context. He can use even the bad things. There's a phrase that shows up in this story, but also over and over in again scripture. God took what was intended for bad and he made it to be good. Or I, I, what you intended for evil or harm, I will work for your good. Both the pronouns changed based on who's speaking it. But the idea is that God is bigger than these problems and his grace is what allows us to even sometimes when we go through life and have seasons of self-destructive behavior, for that to be used for our good. So that later we can stand up you know, or, or talk to somebody and be like, I, I made some really poor decisions in my life and my track record's not great and I've got stories to tell. And yet God's grace is still sufficient even for somebody like me. That's the beautiful part, and perhaps no story um, tells this uh, better than the story I, I call today a tale of two brothers, uh, the story of Joseph and Judah, and it's going to take place in Genesis chapter 37 through 50. I'm breezing through uh, like one long story in three different acts. Um, it's going to take place over 13 different chapters. There were just too many verses to be like, and then verse says this, and then verse says this, so I didn't I didn't do any of that. I apologize if you're like, a, well, I just need to make sure it's in the Bible, you can either trust me or open up your Bible and you'll be able to figure it out for yourself that I'm, I'm not lying and didn't make this story up. There is gonna be a part of this story. You're gonna be like, I don't think that's in there. I think you made that up. I didn't, you guys. It's, it's great, you're gonna love it. It's really, really good. And per that, I should take this time to remind you, if your children are in the room with you today, this one's like a little bit more PG-13-R-ish, we have great children's facilities. You should definitely check those things out with them, or don't blame me when they come to you asking questions, well, what does that mean, right? That's on you, not on me. I gave you fair warning. I'm going to be talking, we're going to get into that in about five minutes. So the five-minute warning, I guess, is what it's called. All right. A story told in three acts, tale of two brothers, a story told in three different acts. That just kind of sets the parameters for where we're going because we'll speed and go there. All right, act one, the one where he sells his brother. Jacob uh, was a, one of the patriarchs of, uh, of the Jewish people. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons. He has 12 sons through four different women, which sounds like the premise to a TV show on the Bravo Network, if you ask me. But uh, that's the drama that we get involved in. He was notably bad at hiding affection for his favorite wife because apparently you have favorite wife. When you have multiple ones, there are favorite ones. I don't know how that works. I don't watch Sister Wives. But I can imagine in a polygamous situation that that's how... it would be difficult, right? Um, And when that favorite wife has a child, uh, and in this story, two children, Benjamin and Joseph, Joseph being the older one, the first one, uh, it's probably no surprise to him or his siblings or anybody involved watching the situation that special treatments and preferential treatment comes to the favorite child. So even though he's not the firstborn son, he becomes the favorite son. And so that's how family dynamics work. Um, By a show of hands, who knew that they were the favorite child in their household growing up? You can raise your hand. It's okay. And if you came, yeah, if you came with a a sibling, they're like, they're pointing to you right now too. Like it's not, you know, nobody's shocked by any of this probably. That's how this sort of thing works. He got the easiest chores, the newest clothes, the biggest room, the best mattress. See, These are all things you don't think of as a kid. The best mattress, who cares about the mattresses? Uh, But then you realize later on, I on, I, I, I slept on rocks. That's how I slept. My, my thing was basically just a sheet of, of, of cotton. That's all this was. Uh, you didn't think your parents had a favorite until I just went through that list of things. And you're like, check, 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 check. I guess they did have favorites. Yes, that's how life works. Jacob made Joseph, his 11th born child, his favorite favorite. Uh, the supervisor of the work of the other 10. They lived in an agrarian society. They would uh, be shepherds. They would go out in the fields. They would raise sheep uh, and then process the wool. And that's how they would pay for their things. And so uh, in that sort of a society, oftentimes the work was done far from home. And the story is gonna show that it's getting harder and harder to find good land for these sheep to uh, graze upon. And a famine, it's, it's like, this, uh, like this foreshadowing of a famine that's about to occur that's gonna happen later where they have to go to Egypt and get all their food. But this is getting further and further away. So the brothers are getting further and further away, forcing uh, Jacob as an older man to send his son to go make sure that the boys are doing good work. Are the, do they need anything? And are, most importantly, are the sheep well? Check on the sheep, right? Sending the younger brother to check on the work of the older child. Have you ever tried this at home? go make sure they're cleaning their room, right? All of a sudden they go down, they come back and they're like, well, they have like cleaning standards that are higher than they've ever had in their life. They're like, well, I, I wouldn't call it clean, but you know, it's, I guess if they're into that, it's supposedly it's clean, right? You know, the, you know that they're setting him up for failure. The father's setting this, this son up for failure. You're You're, you're the one that's Judge and jury over whether the other brothers are doing their job. That can't be great. Animosity develops between these brothers, and it doesn't help that Joseph starts showing up on the scene going, hey, brothers, right, doing his like, little joyous thing. He just came from inside watching the screen, and now he's out there with them working. Uh, and he shows up, uh, and he says this to the brothers. He goes, I had a crazy dream last night. Uh, and you work with somebody who's like this. They think that you're interested in their crazy dreams. It's so weird, isn't it? I had a crazy dream. And, and you know what they want you to say is, oh yeah, tell me about it. And you <laughs> oftentimes just go, oh, cool. You know, I, uh, how do I move on from this? I don't wanna hear, it. but I had a crazy dream last night, right? And he, I'm sure the first brother didn't bite, so he has to go to the other brother. I had a crazy dream. And he's just going until somebody goes, oh yeah, what was it? Oh, good, I'm glad you asked. Um, here's what it was. All of you were in it. We were working in the grain field. So which one of them goes, we? We were working in the grain field? Well, mostly you. Anyways, we were putting grain into bundles. When all of a sudden, mine rose up straight and tall and all of yours started bowing down to it. Whoa, crazy, right? Yeah, super crazy, man. Um, In this point, uh, Kylie and I like to play a game called aware or oblivious with random people that we see, right? Whether we see them in the store or whatever and they're wearing something, you're like, you think they're aware of that or oblivious to that? You have people who uh, like can't uh, stop talking about themselves or a situation that they think is important that you obviously know is not. And you're going, aware or oblivious, right? Fun game, you should try and play it sometime. Uh, this is what's happening with them, I'm sure. Is he aware? He comes here trying to get us to ask him about his stupid dream. And then in this dream, he's better than all of us. And we're bowing down to him. And even the, even the father at one point, he goes, hey, dad, check out my dream. And he tells his, his dad the dream. And, and the, even the dad goes, even though you're my favorite son, like, do you think that we're gonna bow down to you? And he's like, I don't know. This is just a crazy dream I had. <laughs> Aware or oblivious. So that story happens. Later, the 10 older brothers move, have to keep moving further and further away from home. They're about 60 miles away at this point. Again, early signs of a famine. Joseph is sent to check on them. And from a distance, they see their brother and they begin to say, here comes that dreamer. Now they've got a nickname for him. And this is, again, in Instagram, I'm not making this up. This isn't like Brent making things like interesting. This is them saying, here comes that dreamer brother of ours. And then he goes up to them, uh, or in, and as he approaches, I'm sure one of them begins to say this, could you imagine if something ever happened to him? How, what would happen, like how dad would react, like what would the response be? And then my guess would be that this is said again. Could you imagine that something ever happened to him? Could you imagine? And then all of a sudden, the other brother gets it finally. He gets what he's saying. Oh, could you imagine the villain music starts to set in, right? That's what's happening with all of this. They hatch a plan, and it doesn't say who. They, they're, they're not like, and then so-and-so said, here's what we should do. No, nobody has a, a specific thing. The, the original plan that comes out that's pretty dark is just the brothers, a groupthink sort of project together. Kill him, ditch the body, tell dad an animal devoured him. The elder brother then comes up with a different sort of clue. The one responsible for my favorite sandwich, by the way, says this, throw him into the pit alive. And if we do, oops, here we go. Um, it 's a Reuben, by the way, just so you know i I, I threw the joke in there and this but I forgot the slide, so that was me that was on me. <laughs> Throw him into the pit of life if we let him die on his own he won 't have his blood, we won 't have his butt on our hands. This is the concept of um, uh, like uh, in, in Roman times, if you had a child and you weren't sure if it was going to be a boy or girl, you wanted the boy, you didn't want the girl. Girls were costly and they cost money. Boys were, you know, lineage and all that kind of stuff. And so if it, it, there's letters that soldiers would write, would write home to their wives. Um, hey, by the way, uh, thanks. Congrats on being pregnant. That's so exciting. I'm sorry. I'm not going to be there for the birth. If it's a boy, great. Raise it. Let's do this thing. If it's a girl, expose it, right? Which was leave it outside to the elements. And then when it dies, it's not us that killed it. It's nature. It's God, the gods themselves who decided to not let this uh, child live. And a a really uh, sadistic outlook on um, how things work and my culpability in sort of of these kinds of things. And so Reuben comes up with this idea, if we just throw him in a pit and leave him there, he's going to die, but it won't be because of us. It'll be because starvation, which isn't really us, but it is kind of whatever. That's his plan. And what we know about this later, because the author lets us know, is that Reuben had a secret plan. I'm gonna come back after everybody leaves and I'm gonna rescue my brother. And he had some sort of a soft affection for him. So that's at least his way out of this. Everybody agrees to this plan. While Joseph's cries for help echo from a nearby hole in the ground, the brothers share a meal together and debate what it is that we're gonna do next. And along came a caravan of traders, which sparks an idea in what we come to find out is the true leader of the group and where we get our story of a protagonist as it relates to this tale of two brothers. Because the story could be perceived to be about Joseph. There's plenty of material about Joseph in this, but I wanna talk about Judah more today than I wanna talk about Joseph. Judah emerges as the leader of the brothers group. He's the one that when he talks, they listen. He's the one who, when he comes up with a plan, nobody questions the plan. They just say, let's do it. Let's make this thing happen. You've seen this. If you're a teacher at school, you have a group of students, it might not be the tallest, it might not be the smartest, but there is an influential leader. What they say carries more weight than anybody else in that group. Judah is that person with these brothers. He's fourth in line in terms of age, but in in terms of influence, he's the one uh, that holds all of the cards. He says this, guys, I've been thinking, we shouldn't kill Joseph, after all, he is our brother. Besides, if we just kill him, we'll have a big mess on our hands, and we don't gain anything. But if we sell him, if we sell him, he's gone from our lives, and we pocket some silver in the process. It's a win-win. Unless you're Joseph, of course. He didn't say this, but I I added that part. So, uh, but his his philosophy is this: the problem is that we have Joseph in our lives. The solution is he's is out of our lives, and we have money. That's good. And he but he couches it. Listen, how he couches it: we shouldn't kill him. He does he does say that he he's like we, look, guys, he's our brother. He doesn't care that he's our brother. What does he care about? Money. It's a thin veneer of mercy hidden behind uh, this idea of it's, we could get rich in the process. He has what we like to call ulterior motives. And there might be some of you sitting there going, I think you meant ulterior. I did not mean ulterior. It's ulterior. I'm saving you from embarrassment later on or crossword puzzles. Enjoy. It's ulterior. All right. The story then says this, when we sell him, we'll strip him of his jacket, the jacket that dad gave him. We'll kill an animal, we'll spread the blood all over that. And we'll say, dad, we were gone. We had to go further. The land is worse than we thought. And on our way back, we found this jacket. Do you think it belongs to Joseph? That could be, that's tragic. And we, is he here? He's not here. He went to go find you. Oh, well, here's this jacket all we can assume, all we are left to assume is that an animal got him and he's not alive and not with us any longer. And I'm sure uh, Judah came up with this plan. But on your sad face, boys. This is going to be a tough, we're going to need to keep this secret together about what actually happened. So deception, right? Clearly the story is, or what the author is trying to get us to understand when it comes with Judah, is he's smart? (coughs) He's got an edge to him. (coughs) Excuse me. He's not willing to, uh, or he's willing to kind of do, make really hard decisions and that Benefit and profit from him personally. All right, Act Two, the one where he knocks up his daughter-in-law. I told you five minutes. We're at that spot. Okay. I tried to come up with a better phrase, but this is just this is how it works. This it, it only gets worse from here. All right, so don't blame me. Uh, Joseph's story. Trends up from here. So this is where the story split, right? Joseph is sold off to the traders. He's gonna eventually get sold into Potiphar's house. Uh, he's been, Potiphar being a, a, a wealthy kind of landowner, business owner of that time, influential man in, in society then. He does really, really well there. He gets promoted, promoted, promoted. Eventually he's falsely accused of, of trying to rape his wife and, and then gets put in jail. And But makes his way all the way to the right hand of Pharaoh. Like the, the st- many, many chapters on Joseph's rise to fame. He gets uh, like uh, brought into to Pharaoh's inner circle and becomes and is so wise with his handling of business and finances that he eventually becomes like the second hand person to Pharaoh, handling all of his deals so that Pharaoh can go do whatever he wants to do, golf or whatever. Um, so that's that's significant. Joseph's everything is up and to the right for Joseph, but we're going to follow the track record of Judah after this. Judah. Moves on with his life after this scenario. The brother's been sold; they've taken the money. Now he's older; he's got his own thing. He relocates to a several another town, several miles from home. He marries a local gal, settles down, has kids of his own—three boys: Er, Onan, and Sheila. In, in that order, we'll test about that later. So just keep that in mind. Ur's the oldest. He marries a woman named Tamar, but he dies early. In ancient cultures had a tradition. Uh, they called it the, the Levi uh, Levirate marriage that meant that uh, a childless widow, if, if you were married and didn't have children and your husband died, then uh, somebody within that family would remarry you, would promise to remarry you. We'll take care of you. You've married into this family, right? They really meant that at that time. Uh, and usually it was the oldest brother who would kind of assume the responsibility of marrying her, providing for her, having children with her, and naming that firstborn child after their deceased brother or deceased husband, um, and kind of setting that line. in, in line. Although it didn't have to be a brother, it could be anybody in the family, but somebody from that family would step up and take care of this. Think about like the Ruth and Boaz mix a, a little bit later on in, in uh, Genesis and you'd see kind of what's taking place with this, or it's not Genesis, in the Old Testament, I mean. Um, so in this story, the next older brother marries her. Uh, but he dies too. And so now <laughs> we've got Judah here with, who had originally had three sons and he's down to one and he's starting to see sort of a pattern emerge. There's, I don't know what's going on in that household, but I've got two sons that have passed away. I've got one left. And at this point uh, he could have refused or he should have probably handed the, over the son. Well, well, we'll just try this again. She's part of the family, but he refuses the obligation. He could have done this in, in a very big way and exposed the, the whole situation, forbidden the marriage, but that doesn't look great. His peers would never excuse such a huge break with custom and his community would label him as irresponsible, someone who doesn't take care of his family. A man who would not care for his family, can't be trusted with honor uh, and can't wouldn't be uh, expected to honor his business contracts. And he certainly wouldn't be trusted with public office, right, You couldn't be in politics if you don't handle your business correctly and handle your family correctly. It's kind of funny. We work backwards now usually, don't we? Like, we're like, well, that's fine. He's, it's just politics. So um, whatever. Uh, he's too young to marry. This is his solution. Instead of trying to lose his third son, he goes, he comes up with this thing where he says, there's a loophole. He's not quite old enough. He could have gotten around, but he doesn't want to get around it. Until Sheila is old enough to marry, uh, conduct yourselves as a grieving widow. Live with your father, wear the customary widow's garments and reject all other proposals of marriage. Don't worry, I'll take care of you in good time. This says shellac because pages, thinks that I have a wood project later on, but it's supposed to be Sheila. So that's my bad, I I did that. But he tells her, I'm I'm advising you like this. Live as if you're a widow. Go move back in with your original family. Dress up like a widow in her garments and more and more and more. Uh, Here's my deal. I promise I will make this right. It just can't happen right now. And if you've ever like had somebody do this to you, like I promise I'll make this right, but I just, things it's not the right situation right now. And you took them at their word and you're like, okay, that's fine. Six months, a year, what do you think? I don't just, it, when, I, when the timing is right, and it's weird how the timing's just never right, right? And the can gets kicked down the road a little bit further. That's what happens in this story. Tamar gets older. She's recognized that months and years go by at this point. Sheila is now of marriageable age and yet nothing takes place. Judah never really intended to kind of fulfill his promise. He just wanted to not lose faith with society and not look like somebody who doesn't take responsibility for his family and doesn't provide for them. So he doesn't go through what he promised to do, he's just kicking the can down the road avoiding responsibility. And she decides to take matters into her own hands. She's getting older. Her ability to kind of uh, produce children and and therefore justify kind of all of this for her uh, is struggling. If her father dies, whom she lives with, she'll have no protection, no source of income, no nothing. She decides to do something drastic to kind of call him to account for the promises that he has made. Each spring, wealthy men left their homes to personally oversee their harvest Canaanite sheep-shearing festivals often included cultic prostitution and pagan rituals to enhance fertility for the coming year. Their belief system would be like this. There were prostitutes who worked in the temple of these pagan temples. You would go, you would sleep with these women, and their fertility would appease the goddess of fertility, and then your animals somehow would have more babies later on. I don't know how it all works, guys. Church was crazy back then. People were like, where's that church at? That doesn't sound like a 501c3 at all. You know what I mean? You're right. Um, Tamar shed her widow's garments, dressed herself up like a temple prostitute, waited by the main gate of the city, knowing full well that Judah would be eventually making his way there. The temple gate of the city would be kind of where all the contracts would be signed. This is a business place. She knew where she where he would find or She would find him. She has a conversation. She approaches him. She offers up her services. It's not out. It's not within the temple, and it's kind of frowned upon in this way. Even it's again, it's an outside. Uh, It's it's a pagan religion. It's outside of this. He would understand that this goes on around there, but probably for them, as kind of a, we kind of live differently. It's not looked upon well to do this, to engage in this sort of behavior. It would be like worshiping foreign gods for them. It would be something you don't want to be associated with, but happens under the scenes, right? So... She presents herself to him. She is wearing a veil, which she, the author of Genesis lets us know that he's unable to identify her, and he certainly wouldn't expect to find his daughter-in-law dressed like a temple prostitute. And the fact that he doesn't recognize her during the conversation perhaps says something about their interactions over the years. Clearly, he didn't stay in touch to check on her welfare or to reassure her that he would f- f- come through with his promises. Judah solicited her services and they agreed that the price would be a goat, which apparently was the going rate for that sort of thing 3,000 years ago. (laughs) He didn't have the goat on him, shockingly, so she demanded a deposit, a seal in his staff, a seal being a ring that he would have worn as a necklace around his shirt that would seal documents when he would make a business transaction, basically a signature of sorts. A staff, a personal item that was clearly identified with him. Every one of us have probably something that people know of. Oh, that's so-and-so's. They have that on their keychain or whatever the case may be. A few days later, he would send the goat, but the mysterious prostitute is nowhere to be found. He asked the men of the town where he might find her, and all of them said, Who are you talking about? And he's like, The temple prostitute thing that's at the city gate. And they're like, There's never, there's no prostitute here. And he's like, What? Did I say prostitute? I meant uh, she was selling apples or something like that. She had had things that was, uh, you you haven't seen anybody about this high? No, there's nobody here like that. When this was reported to Judah, rather than embarrass himself and risk becoming the butt of the town jokes, he decided to let the matter go. He orders himself a new seal and carves himself a new staff and just basically says, let's forget about this whole ordeal. Three months pass People around Tamar can tell that she's pregnant. Even with her widow's garments back on, there's a little bump that's beginning to show and she becomes the talk of the town. Can you imagine the nerve of that woman? The disgrace to the family. She's supposed to be a widow. Her son's only been dead for six years. And now here she is. Judah responded exactly like somebody hiding a secret sin. Someone pretended to be somebody he's not. He burns with righteous indignation against the sin of another while conveniently forgetting his own wrongdoing in the process. My daughter-in-law has shamed my family. Let her be tried publicly and burned alive for her sin. Pretty aggressive. Uh, Pretty insightful into the human psyche of someone who is struggling with their own secret sin who responds to that by going hyper-aggressively at the sins of others. Something that perhaps you've noticed play out in life. How righteous he must have felt in that moment. How his neighbors must have sympathized with this pillar in their community. How utterly proper for him to do what must be done to defend his good name. Leading us to question ourselves. Like we, again, in this situation, he's got a name to uphold. We, we already look at him with kind of a side eye based on what he did with Joseph early on in act one, but none of them would have known that. That's, that's a secret between him and the other 10 brothers. Um, he, for all intents and purposes, has grown up and lived a pretty respectable life. Um, and so for this, to being, for, for this to be kind of his name dragged through the mud would have provided enough justification from him from a facade image uh, to kind of keep up. I got to keep up appearances. I, I can't allow something like this to take place. I must. Something must be done in this way. On the day of her trial and probable execution, a man arrived at her home. As things, things would have gone or as things went, uh, someone would have bound her hands together and shaved her head. And then a mob would have dragged her through the streets to the place of the execution. But before any of that could happen, she says this, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong, presenting then what we know to be the seal and the signature and the staff. Things would have been completely identifiable. She waits until the crowds are at their largest, until the point everyone comes out to see her get what she has coming to her. And then she says, first, just quickly, could you get these things back to their owner, who's the father of this child? And they immediately go, oh, get out here. Come here, come here. You got to see this. This is crazy he realizes he's stuck. The crowds are too big. He's in a position, his guilt has been exposed. He has nothing to do. He recognizes his wrongdoing. He recognizes who he is, it is he's dealing with at this point. And then here's what he says. She is more righteous than I, and as much as I did not get her to my son, Sheila. She is more righteous than I, like I realize this becomes like a turning point for Jude. It it looks like in this story, like it begins to set in on him and he realizes, I can't live like this. This isn't what I should do. This isn't the right way of doing things. This is, I've been exposed. My duplicitous sort of lifestyle is now on full display for everyone to see. The facade is not worth keeping up any longer. There's a shift that takes place there, but that's not the end of the story. Act three, the one where he's blessed. Now, for the sake of time, I'm gonna skip over perhaps the most famous part of the Joseph story. Um, and the, the brothers are, are trying to you know raise their animals and do their thing and, and there's just nothing. Famine completely surrounds and engulfs um, Israel. And so they have to go like everyone else into Egypt to beg for food and to sell off things. And uh, while they're there, they approach what they think to be Pharaoh or Pharaoh's right-hand person. It's Joseph, they don't know that. And they say, we'd love some food. And he says, yeah, I'll give you some food. He knows exactly who they are. He sends them home with some food, to, you know, expecting them to come back and then plants this silver goblet in one of them, their, their bags and gets one of them in trouble. And, and he sees Judah step up. They're like, they, he tries to keep Benjamin, the youngest, and Judah steps up and says, no, 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 if, if, if Benjamin doesn't go home with me, my dad will surely die of a heart attack. It'll be deadly for him. Keep me instead. And I think it's in that moment that Joseph recognizes that there's been a shift in Judah's persona. This is the same brother that sold me, um, but like he gets it now. Maybe perhaps he felt guilty for it, and now he's protecting the youngest, my brother, my true brother, um, in all of this. Judah stays behind. Eventually, Jacob shows up and the brothers show up. Once he sees everybody there, Joseph takes the moment to kick everybody else out of the room. These brothers, again, don't recognize who he is. And once everybody's out, he starts bawling. And all they can think about is this weird foreign ruler is crying in front of us. Must be a weird scenario. And he looks at them with tears in his eyes. And he says, it's me. I'm Joseph. To which I'm sure Judah in his moment goes, I'm probably dead now, (laughs) right? That would be what you would expect in that scenario. But, the, but again, I tell you this story because it's a story of grace. When it comes to grace, we don't always get what we deserve. In fact, oftentimes we get the things that we don't deserve. One example of it here. Joseph says, go get the family, bring them all here. You guys can live with me. Things are gonna change. We're gonna be good now. I've got all this stuff. Everything that I have is yours. Amazing story of redemption. It's really, really cool. Uh, It gets to that spot where now Jacob is old. He's about to die. And they go through what is called like a final blessing, right? And if you've ever been to the hospital for the closing moments of somebody's life, you know, like words just weigh a lot. And you look at them and the way that they speak and their voice it, 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 there, there's like a lot less power there in terms of vocal, you know, chords or whatever. But in terms of weight, in terms of what they say to you, like those are powerful, powerful words. And so for them, it was a, a point of blessing. Parents would, on their deathbed, uh, give one final blessing to their kids, say something over them. And they Israelites believed that their words carried that power, that the, those words went out of their mouth and kind of uh, became this thing that continued to work on the lives of their kids, even, even beyond their, their parents' lives. So... Um, somebody would be identified as the firstborn and they would get a double blessing and they would become the executor of the estate. They would become like in the spirit of Jacob, you are, right? That's how firstborn sort of things would work. Oftentimes it would be the firstborn son, but it could be at the discretion of a father who uh, didn't like how the firstborn handled things or the firstborn was no longer alive. And so it would get passed on to someone. So it was like this selection process. But I think... Everyone there that day kind of knew who was getting it, right? Like, it's clearly going to be Joseph. Look at where we're at. Look at what's transpired. Look at the track record that all of us have. The only reason why we're here and we're still alive is because of Joseph. So this is a formality for 11 sons. We're all lining up there. Like today, after the Chiefs win the Super Bowl, when they go, and the Super Bowl MVP is... There is no backup long snapper sitting on the sideline going, oh, call my name, call my name. It's Patrick Mahomes, right? The guy could do nothing and would still win. There's not even a defensive player. A defensive player would have to get like 12 sacks in a game to win defensive MVP. That's how it it doesn't happen. So these 11 or 12 brothers are lining up to get a blessing from dad and every one of them goes, we know it's Joseph. He's like 11th. Do we really have to go through 10? No, but they do. Reuben, the oldest, steps up in front. Joseph goes, or Jacob in his deathbed goes, Reuben, Reuben, Reuben. I, I should have put it in here, but there's like some things. It's not you. And Reuben's like, I didn't expect it to be. Thank you very much. I'll step backwards. Then Levi and Simeon step up and, and he's like, I, you guys were so closely associated with violence. You're so prone to violence. I don't want my name associated with violence. It's not you. And they're like, we didn't expect it either. We all know why we're here. We're all, it's a waiting game until Joseph gets up here. Judah steps forward. And here's the best part. I guarantee you, Judah did not think he was getting it that day. Guarantee it. Why would he? Now his guilt has been exposed about what I did to my brother. I was the one, I was the mastermind behind the whole selling the process. I watched you grieve over the loss of your son. And I quote unquote, grieved with you. I watched you experience one of the most broken moments of your life. I'm the one that caused that. There's no way I would expect you to say anything good about me at this point. Not to mention all of the stuff about Tamar and all of the, now all of that's out there too. Like, you know so much of me. Let me just get this over with quickly. I'll step out and I'll step back. That's how it's gonna work. And Judah steps out and hears what Jacob says to him. You Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your fingers on your enemy's throat while your brothers honor you. The scepter shall not leave Judah. He'll keep a firm grip on the command staff until the ultimate ruler comes and the nations obey him. He gets the blessing. It goes on. There's more, more to it than that. He gets his. If you read the blessings, his is the longest of all of them, and it's clearly one of the only good ones in there. He speaks so highly of him. It's like he overlooks. Don't you remember? Like maybe your eyesight's bad. I'm, I'm Judah. Does it sound like Joseph at that age? Maybe it's Judah though. And he goes. This is what I'm leaving you. Judah would then be go, go on. David would, become, would claim his right to the throne because he's a descendant of Judah. Matthew, when he talks about the descendants of Jesus in Matthew chapter one, would link Joseph all the way back to David and then David back to Judah. This would become like the big thing. This was the family that everybody wanted to be a part of. This is the lineage. This is everything. This was everything and he deserved none of it. And yet God chose to work on it this way, why? It would have made total sense for him to go with Joseph. And he didn't, he chose Judah. Cause I think he wanted to show from very early on, listen, I give things to people that don't deserve them. I do good things for people. I take their self-destructive things and I turn even those things for their good. He did it then, he continues to do with us. I don't know your story. I don't know where he came from. I don't know all of that. But I guarantee you, there's been some things in your life that you look back on and be like, man, that was a, not proud of those that season, not proud of that moment. That was, those were a tough couple years. Those were a tough first marriage. That was a tough this. And yet a lot of you, I talk to you, your story is, but God continued to use me anyways. But I do think that there's something about that, that there's, I'm so thankful for grace. I'm so thankful I didn't always get what I deserved. I'm thankful even now where I stand that I get constantly things that I don't deserve. Because that is how God's grace works. It's how it's worked since the garden. That's how it's continued to work. Didn't start with Jesus, guys. Perfect example of it, perfect picture. As Paul would say later, the icon, a a, a greater, perfect example of this, no question. But God has been about grace since the beginning. And the funny thing about grace when it comes to Judah is simply this. In the end, he didn't really find grace as much as it found him. May that be true for us too. May it be true for you in your life. May it be true when you reflect back on where you're at and why you're here and why you believe the things that you do now. And you realize in the end, I didn't find grace. It found me. It found me. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that we would read these stories, that we read these the stories of these brothers, This these family drama that takes place with all of this and recognize that you were, you are your controlling hand was a part of the entire time and your grace extends even in spite of our poor decisions and poor background and poor everything. Thank you for your grace in our life as we look at it personally, because we have our own story, we're our own Jude, our own version of it. Thank you for giving us what we do not deserve and uh, for being there. Get me, your grace continue to operate in our lives. Give us the wisdom to know what it looks like to go with it when they see it church to do something about it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, EastLakeTriCities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.